Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Sabrina. I'm Skip, and today we're thrilled to have Mark Lilla with us. Professor Lilla is Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University. He previously taught at New York University and the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. Professor Lilla is a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books and the New York Times, and his books have been translated into more than a dozen languages. In 2015, Overseas Press Club of America awarded him its prize for best commentary on international news in any medium. His latest book, released in 2017, is entitled The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Lilla. Great to be here. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests <clears throat> to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Would you share a moment with us? Well, I do feel that um, I've already gone through seven of the nine lives that, uh, as a cat, that I'm, uh, I'm allowed. So there have been so many of them. I guess for me, the inflection point was living in Europe for a four-year period and being out of the States. Um, it just gave me a sense of proportion, uh, I think, about a lot of things that Americans get excited about. We're a very excitable people, and uh, we have very short memories. And so every moment seems like a new crisis or a new opportunity. And um, we, we tend towards hysteria. And uh, living uh, abroad uh, and really being embedded somewhere else, not just you know living with students, um, kind of frees you from that. And allows you to come back to the States if you're alert at all with uh, a different pair of eyes. And I was also there at a very important historical moment. I was there um, in the late 80s and so saw the Berlin Wall come down and visited Eastern Europe before it did. And so it was a very momentous time to be in Europe. Was that also the time when you mentioned you, you only consumed European media for a year, or was that at a different point? Oh, I do that whenever I go to Europe, and, okay. I, go, and I go all the time. I just, uh, I just stay away from American media. I, I spent 2014, 2015 in Paris and right. just lived off of foreign media, which is also good because it makes you realize what's going on in the American papers. And the, the difference, you know, there are differences of tone and emphasis, but mainly... Um, Different questions seem important once you're outside. And, you know, at this moment in particular, when there's so much passion around questions like identity politics and so on, um, you can start to think that those are the most important questions in the world. And then you go into the world, and it turns out the, the rest of the world doesn't think so. Mm -hmm. So your background, you've, you've lived just outside Detroit in Michigan, and Macomb County used to be very liberal, liberal, and it's known to be the birthplace of Reagan Democrats. Mm. So how was your time growing up there influence your education choices and your career paths? Well, it's not influenced my path. I mean, it was, it was just, you know, out of a couple of miracles that I ended up leaving home. You know, it was a blue collar family. And, um, you know, the idea was I'd be the first one to go to college, which I did. And I was. But then you would come back and have some kind of ordinary job and, you know, not too far. And I ended up going uh, very far away. No, I think, um, you know, it, it gave me, it certainly just gave me a sense of, of the way certain kinds of Americans live who are very different from the Americans that I live with now. And even though 
those people, that is people in southeastern Michigan, have changed. Um, uh, the gap is still extraordinary. And, you know, the more and more we become a meritocratic society, the more we reproduce elites because they go to elite institutions, they marry people who are also going to elite institutions, they have elite little kids, and they know how to get them through the social system. And so the gap, the more meritocratic the society, paradoxically, the more inequality there is. And so you end up, I end up with students um, where within their families, there's no memory of anyone having done a manual job, for example. You know, and so there's a cluelessness about people who punch the time clock, actually wait, have to wait until Friday to get paid. And so, you know, to understand what government workers just went through, you know, these are people with not much savings. Um, everything's on a tight budget. And everything flows very quickly. And, um, you know, I just take that for granted. But clearly, um, the people in this administration, at the top levels of this administration, who were very well off, have no conception of that. And not many of my students have a conception of that. So you mentioned a little bit about identity politics, and now your latest book, as mentioned, is The Once and Future Liberal. Could you share with our listeners just a little bit about what that book is about um, right now? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the book came out of a, a kind of... Uh, exasperation uh, that I experienced after uh, the election of Donald Trump. I'm a kind of centrist Democrat. And my frustration was uh, not that Hillary Clinton barely lost and so on, um, but uh, all the factors that went into the Democratic Party losing its traditional base in this country, you know, among people uh, that I grew up with. And I, I thought that was a long story, not a short story. Uh, so, but at first I wrote an article about how the focus on identity politics had shifted the party's focus, not from one group to other groups so much as from a picture of, of um, a country where we share things and where we share a destiny to one in which there are nothing but groups and individuals. And the reaction to that article was so overwhelming. It was the... Uh, most read political article in the New York Times of, of 2016, and, and so negative for people who are critical. If, if you take seriously Twitter in your life, which I don't, but you know, um, if you were to judge by that, it was overwhelmingly negative and incredibly nasty. And because of that, I was inundated with speaking requests and all the rest. I decided to, and because I felt I'd been misunderstood, I decided to write the book. And so the book is um, really about how we got where we are, if you are, as I am, a partisan Democrat. And I talk about uh, two phases um, uh, of, uh, of what happened. One was uh, the Reagan years, where a kind of apolitical or anti-political libertarianism took over in the country. And, um, uh, and, so, and, and during that period, in order to combat that, you would have expected the um, Americans on the left and center-left to develop a political account of what we share as a nation, what we owe each other to combat a kind of Reagan, Reaganite individualism. Instead, phase two, uh, what happened was the development of a different kind of individualism 
that was focused on personal identity and a politics that revolved around that. And that has turned out to be, um, that kind of politics has turned out to be successful at the cultural level. We live in a very different culture because of this identity politics. They captured Hollywood, captured, uh, they captured uh, the media, for example, and our, our educational institutions. But it really handed over the keys of American government to an increasingly radicalized Republican Party, and that's how we got to Trump. Uh, not because of who Democrats were focused on so much as what they weren't focusing on. And so the last part of the book is how are some thoughts about uh, citizenship and the way in which uh, citizenship can, um, as a basis of sharing uh, a destiny, can offer a different way uh, for liberals and Democrats to talk about why they're for what they're for. So as I'm sure you have experienced firsthand, the Democratic response to your work, particularly The Guardian, wrote an article um, saying that you have more enemies on the left than on the right. And you've responded in that interview that the criticisms were willful misreadings of your ideas. And so could you sh maybe share a little more about how you've responded to these attacks or critics? Well, since I'm not on social media, um, I've only responded by doing my book and by giving other interviews and uh, doing a lot of public speaking. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, um, there are advantages to being a dinosaur uh, and not entering into that crazy room of, of social media. But I just try to go out and make my case. But also what I discovered, I guess that was the depressing part, is, uh, of course, I can observe on Twitter how people respond, um, is coming to the conclusion that so many on the left and so many Democrats are not interested in politics, really. They aren't interested in power. They aren't interested in governing. The point of politics is to govern. It is not to express yourself. It is not to... Uh, make uh, woke gestures about things. It is about governing. And the only way to help the groups you care about, this is the message I keep wanting to emphasize, that people who willfully misread me ignore completely, is that you cannot do anything for women, African Americans, migrants, uh, LGBT people, if you do not hold power. And there's a love on this democratic left elite, there's a love of noble defeats. And why is that? One reason why that is, is because they live in safe blue states. So there's no chance of anything in their lives really changing. But right now, uh, in the middle of the country, in the South and in the West, there are all sorts of states where effectively a woman can't get an abortion. And um, where effectively voting rights are being denied African-Americans. Winning, winning the presidency, uh, even getting a majority in Congress will not change that. If you want to fight, if you want women to be able to get an abortion in Iowa, you need to go to Iowa. And you need to convince Iowans who are overwhelmingly white and religious. And because of this culture divide, the inability of people in elite liberal culture to even understand how people like that think, uh, they become politically impotent and the people they care about are unprotected.
So as you mentioned, you're tired of noble <clears throat> defeats. Um, and you, you've mm -hmm. also said, I prefer a dirty victory to a noble defeat. Um, and you brought up Lyndon Johnson, an example, um, because he passed the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Um, what I'm kind of wondering about is um, how far would you go in that kind of sense? Because I think a recent article, a New York Times article in December of 2018, uh, mentioned that uh, Democrats in the special election Senate race in Alabama had been using Russian tactics to spread misinformation during that campaign. And that I think everyone would kind of categorize as a, as a dirty tactic, as a dirty trick. And, you know, to an extent, it did pay off. Uh, Doug Jones, the, the Democrat, did win. Do you see that as going too far? Or oh, is my that God. Yes. No, no, no. I don't mean by dirty. I don't mean anything like what, what, what my opponents would consider dirty, which is that sometimes you have to enter a coalition with people uh, whose other values you don't share because you have a shared interest in something else, right? And so there may be certain groups that uh, may join you uh, in order to have a democratic victory who might not share your views about abortion or uh, the family and all sorts of things like that. And, you know, you have to learn to talk around those things and to find what you share and not administer purity tests to everyone and on their language. That's what I meant. I don't mean, you know, anything illegal or suspicious like that. I mean, you know, politics is about, you know, people on the, on the liberal left hate the word compromise. Oh, do you mean compromising our, our ideals? It's not compromise so much as it is trade-offs. Life is full of trade-offs. You can't get everything you want. So how do you put priorities on what you do want? And what do you find yourself willing to trade in order to get it if you actually want power? But if you simply want to make gestures and look good on Twitter and be, want to be able to sleep well at night because your apron is clean, you're not going to make any trade-offs, and you're not going to have any power. On NPR, you said you said after the 2016 election that Democrats have lost the country. And so after the victory in the House of Representatives in 2018, do you think that they've won it back? No. Again, to begin with, we focus too much on Washington. Mm. The real power in this country is held by the states when it comes to so many issues that we care about, right? The picture you know, is looking, looked a little better, but it's all an anti-Trump vote. And we'll have to see what things look like after he's gone. Even 2020 won't be a good measure of that. Right. Um, and, and given the anti-Trump feeling on the one hand, and also the wonderful fact that uh, we had such a diverse group of candidates who were out there uh, putting forward a common message and not talking about themselves, uh, that was all to the good. Uh, but no, uh, what Democrats are not able to do is offer a national narrative of what we are as a country, where, what we owe each other especially. The word duty never leaves the lips of anyone in American politics anymore. And um, how we're going to achieve something in, in the future. And I don't see Democrats capable of doing that right now. You know, Democrats are for all sorts of things. But what they're not capable of is telling you why, what it is that makes them be for all those things. What are the basic principles? What's the basic picture of the country you have? And during the Reagan years, up into, and you know, which I consider the Reagan years up to the, the um, roughly the um, uh, ascension of Trump, uh, Republicans had a story and they had principles, and they derived from you know certain conservative principles about the family and anti-conservative principles about the economy. And those somehow went together and offered a kind of picture. 
to the country. And they delivered a lot of that. And then now people get to judge whether that's the world they want. It turns out a lot of people don't like that world, right? But, but to replace that, you need to have a narrative and principles and not be focused on every interest group and their sensitivities. And you've written approvingly about uh, two Democratic presidents who did, you said, do it right. Uh, President Clinton uh, with his message, you know, and staying away from any politics. President Obama, President Clinton famously said it's the economy stupid, or I guess it was uh, James Carville, one of his advisors. But um, what advice would you maybe give to uh, Democratic candidates running in 2020 to adhere to uh, the message that you're kind of trying to describe here? Yeah. Don't focus on policy. I would be very happy to turn on a presidential debate without candidates taking a deep breath and as the, as the clock ticks away, give, you, uh, give us a rapid fire account. This is my position on health care. This is my position on transportation, on and on and on. None of that tells you what you're about as a human being and as a politician and what your larger vision of the country is. I would focus on large themes and beat them in, Lar principles, and defend those principles. And then once you're asked questions about policy, you can answer those questions with reference to those principles or with reference to that larger picture that you have. Um, and uh, so, you know, that's a very hard thing to do at the primary stage. But again, I'm not, you know, uh, the election of President Trump, from my point of view, shows how much damage a bad executive can do. But a strong executive can't do that much. It turns out the presidency is not as strong as we like to think. We invest all these hopes. You know, we have this kind of magical thinking when it comes to presidents. But we also have a democratic system that limits the power of the presidency, and rightfully so, right? And so we invest all these hopes that are then disappointed because, of course, the president can't just do what he or eventually she would like, would like to achieve. It means focusing on the entire system. The Republicans were very good at building from the base up, very strong at local elections, very strong at state elections, and then state legislatures and so on. For example, one of the reasons it really matters to focus on states and things like that is because that's where all the judges get appointed for you know various uh, state courts. And from there, they float up to federal courts and so on. You must start at the bottom. And there was a decision... Uh, it was actually during the Clinton administration to try to have a strategy where you focused on areas where your strengths were and treat, you know, kind of triage and treat other places as lost causes. And for a while, there was a, a, a chairman of the Democratic Party, Howard Dean. I don't know if you remember if you're if you remember who he was, but Howard Dean argued for what he called a fifty-state strategy, which is that you got to show up, even if it's a lost state. You gotta have your face there. You gotta have an office. You gotta have a buzzer on the door just to show that you're present and you care so that potentially, eventually, you can make some inroads. Uh, but, you know, once the consultants came in, um, I once talked to someone who was a close advisor, very close advisor to Hillary Clinton and worked with her in the White House during uh, the whole eight years. And he said that he was in the room when Dean made this proposal to Clinton. He said, We all laughed him laughed at him. He was right. He was right. Unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. Sure. And that's a question we ask all of our guests. It's what is your personal definition of success? And what advice would you give to students in defining success for themselves? Well, uh, I, I guess the answer to both those questions is the same. And that is self-knowledge. 
um, you know, a lot of students go to college thinking that what it's about is getting the skills they need to achieve what they want in life. Well, the point of college, from my point of view, is figuring out what's worth wanting in life. If you spend enough time thinking about that, then the decisions about your life uh, become uh, become a lot easier. And um, so whatever you consider success to be, none of that is going to be achievable and sustainable, I think, if you first don't know yourself. And knowing yourself doesn't just mean mean knowing what I am is the single person I am. It means knowing something about human nature. It means knowing something about society in order to know, know oneself. So that's always the first task. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thank you, Professor Lilla, for joining us. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>